that case, Hope Not Hates are basically controlling Britain. Hope Not Hate, an alluring name for those more concerned about social justice than truth. These backward, these backward thinking, virtue, sick, virtue signaling, fake news crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of the Hope Not Hate podcast. It is a turbulent time in British politics. I'm joined by my colleagues Joe. Hello. And Sophia. Hey. And we are going to try and avoid Brexit to the greatest extent of our abilities. We're going to cover some more depressing topics, in fact. (laughs) We're going to talk about Tommy Robinson's uh, uh, failed attempt uh, at foray into the United States. And we're going to talk about uh, uh, the latest from uh, uh, China uh, and the situation that the Uyghurs are facing there. We're going to also cover um, a little bit about Brexit and uh, uh, hear about Joe's recent trip to uh, Poland. But in the meantime, how's everyone feeling about the current state of affairs? <laughs> I'm not going on Twitter. Like, I'm trying to avoid Twitter and just do other things today. Yeah, actually, last night I turned my phone off, turned the television off and read a book. And, like, ignorance really is bliss. Like, when I think about, like, my mates from a lot of them who don't like politics at all, I thought, God, this must be, like, that's why they're so happy. Yeah, what book was it, though? I mean, it was actually George Bernard Shaw um, of Intelligent Woman's Guide to Socialism. But that was just, I happened to be on the floor. <laughs> happened to be on the floor. Yeah, sounds, sounds really relaxing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nice one. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I mean, the whole thing's miserable, isn't it? But let's, you know, well, <laughs> we're in it now. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I was reminded this morning of uh, John McCain's comment after he lost the presidency in 2008. He was asked how, how he was doing. He said, uh, you know, I'm sleeping like a baby. Waking up every 20 minutes crying. Uh, because my daughter is waking up every 20 minutes crying and I've had no sleep. So, But anyway, on a, on a brighter note, why don't we, uh, why don't we start with, uh, with, with some good news from America? Yes, some good news. Um, on our latest update on Tommy, this is, I've started to feel like a stalker um, in the last six months. But um, it's kind of all I talk about. But we, have some, we had some good news. We were really concerned that Tommy Robinson, real, now, uh, real name Stephen Yaxley Lennon, was going to America. He was invited by a number of think tanks, the Middle East Forum, the David Horowitz Center, and some pretty unsavory Republican characters, including Steve King. Um, and they were brought him over to give a few talks, and we were really concerned about him raising a huge amount of money off the back of it. A lot of his funding already comes from the States. He's increasingly a big name out there, and we thought the last thing we wanted was for him to be able to turn up in America, get loads of TV interviews, get loads of press on Fox News, and boost his money. And we, we spent a lot of time working through the numbers on it, looking at the donations we could work from the past and try and understand what we thought would be a reasonable amount. And um, we came to around about at least or easily a million pounds on this. Um, we thought that he could pull through if he made it there. And... Um, we launched a campaign to try and stop this happening. And we, uh, along with Ruth Smead, the MP, got together a letter of lots of MPs. I think we got about 55 in the end, uh, which went to the American embassy and it went to the State Department in America. And we did lots of lobbying and lots of campaigning. And the good news was is um, he wasn't given a visa in the end. Um, lots of people were concerned about the fact that because of the importance of the people he was meeting with, he might actually get in. Now, we all know that he's got this criminal past, right? We all know he's got he's broken into America before on a fake passport and actually then ran out of the airport, right? So it was... Um, in one sense, it was just staggering that this was even a question, right? This was showing how, you know, this is the effect of Trump. The fact that Trump's in, in power meant that he might, this guy who's got a criminal record as long as you are, with a history of violence and including breaking into America illegally, um, it looked likely that he was going to get in. Um, but the campaign worked. He didn't get in. Um, the event happened yesterday, um, and he had spoke very briefly via audio link. There was hardly anyone there. It picked up very, very little press. Um, and it got disrupted as well um, by some people who were in the audience and stood up and disrupted the event. So not a good day for Tommy Robinson. So after a long kind of haul, um, uh, we've got some good news there. The other good news that came off the back of it, again, as part of this campaign, PayPal uh, dropped Tommy Robinson. Um, he gets a huge amount of his donations through PayPal. They've decided to do the right thing and pull the service away from him. And um, we all had a great time in the office watching a video that he did where Tommy Robinson stands up and says, due to our campaign, he's had a 40% decline in donations. Um, Is that legit, though? Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, um, we'd been, as I say, part of the campaign around the amount of money he'd been raising. Um, We've been hammering home to everyone is that this guy who talks like a man of the people is someone who has raised millions of pounds recently. Um, this is a guy with you know nice houses, nice clothes, nice cars, and then he talks about this man of the people, and that message is getting through to people, and people are realizing that that's the case and are stopping to donate. Um, and uh, he's really upset about that, and he's really upset about that, which makes our day. Um, that plus then PayPal pulling it again will reduce his um, 
uh, reduce the amount of money he gets through PayPal. And we're working to try and put pressure on other service providers like Stripe. Um, so please do tweet them. Um, we think that Stripe, uh, you know, there was a new uh, Times article recently that he was getting hundreds of thousands, if not millions, through his Stripe account. Um, so it'd be really great for them to step up and follow PayPal's lead on that. One of the things I thought was was great about the the video that he put out complaining about our campaign was he, you know, he, he said something that was is basically our our whole rationale for for the campaign itself. He said, if I don't have these resources, I can't run these campaigns. Yeah. You know, he wanted to use the money that he would have got out of America to organise demos around the country, trying to politicise and, and and manipulate people around some of these grooming scandals. Uh, it would have caused disruption. It would have caused division. It, you know, a lot of his protests in the past have turned violent. Yeah. So the fact that he's got less money means he can do less of that work. So yeah. I mean, he's exactly right. The, the less money he's got, the more we can stop him from from raising that money. The the less. Uh, trouble he can cause. So absolutely, I mean, it's worth. On. It's worth. I mean, like, look, it's it's really great that you know we've managed to land a bit of a hammer blow this week. Um, but it's still worth remembering. He's still one of the best funded far right activists in the world right I, now. I didn't want to say it because yeah. I was like I was going to bring the mood down. But <laughs> yes, I mean, since prison, Tommy has been very popular. And while this is a, it's a, a battle, not the war. Yeah, no, I, of course, absolutely. That's worth pointing out. That this, I mean, we're going to have to continue to fight this for a long time coming. Um, and he still remains one of the best funded post-war far-right characters we've had in the UK. Um, and so we're going to have to keep fighting on this. And that's a specific point about the visa as well, is that he was not granted a visa in, in time for this trip. But the the application, as we understand it, is still in the process. This isn't the end of this uh, the, this fight. We were able to stop him getting in for this specific event, mm-hmm. which is a big win. He would have been on stage with members of Congress. Mm-hmm. He could have done all this fundraising that Joe mentioned. But the U.S. administration has not, as we understand it, specifically rejected his application. They just haven't acted on it yet. So we need to keep the pressure up for sure. Doesn't he have a, like a ten-year ban? Is that? Yes, he does currently. I mean, in, in, in normal circumstances, there's no way in which this should even be a conversation. Yeah. Um, but we're not in normal circumstances. Yeah. I mean, as, as part of this work, I you know talked to people that used to work for the Department of Homeland Security in America uh, and for the Department of Justice, and they were incredulous that I was even calling them. They said, you know, this is... You know, it's impossible that he would be giving him a visa. It's inexplicable. It's in even, even a discussion. So I think that really shows... Followed by a but... Followed by a but, but with this with this administration, you never know. So yeah. um, I think that's that's the thing. There's a very strong case in U.S. law against uh, Lenin being allowed into the United States, but with the Trump administration, we can't keep our our foot off the gas. We have to keep the pressure up. Yeah, he's also said he's going to Australia again. I mean, Australia's a really interesting one at the moment. We've seen a series of tours. Stefan Molyneux and Lawrence Southern, the kind of vloggers from uh, YouTube, they went out recently. Milo's had a tour which has been mired in controversy. It was kind of cancelled. No one's getting their money back, so that's up there. But there are obviously lots of these figures are seeing Australia as a place to go out there, not just because it's a nice country and, you know, it's a nice tour, but again, raise money, fill rooms. So Tommy Robinson's planning that and we're going to be ramping up our campaign to try and get that stopped as well. How are they raising money? Are they just through tickets or telling people donate the 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 tickets uh i mean it's a really incredible thing if you look at the website that gavin mckinnis and and lennon have have got for their tour uh the tickets range up to a thousand dollars no way (laughs) include a thousand dollars will buy you a vip reception before the talk and a champagne reception and uh, people people race this one direction when you're those meet and greets that the kids used to go to um (laughs) and people pay this yeah people meet it i mean i mean I mean, I, I'd pay a grand not to spend time, a dinner with Tommy Robinson, but um, I mean, I think obviously I'd still there's a lot. Go and eat the food, but <laughs> yeah. you know that doesn't mean anything. Um, but obviously, there's a lot of people that seem quite keen to do it, so it's going to be a, an interesting one to watch. But um, the wheels are turning on that as well because Australia's got pretty strict laws yeah. around a lot of this as well. So, kind of keep your eyes out for that. Yeah. Great, right, let's move on. Um, Sophia, you want to give us an update on uh, the upcoming edition of Lamp? Yes. So um, I'm going to be plugging Lamp a bit again. For those of you who have not listened to the few the previous podcasts or um, seen me tweeting about this constantly online, I uh, write an email newsletter, uh, Light on Anti-Muslim Prejudice, which is everything Islamophobia. And I had a very interesting interview um, with Mehdad Versi, who is part of the executive committee for the Muslim Council of Britain, 
and um, he's responsible for media monitoring and he's become well known for particularly this part, especially in newsrooms, because he spots any factual errors about Muslims or Islam that journalists print or put online. Um, and he very politely calls the editor up and points it out. So it's not about bias, because that's a whole other battle, but it's something incorrect, which obviously, you know, first job of a journalist is not to do that. Um, and uh, I really enjoyed speaking to him. He was like one of the, you know, one of the... Personally, personally one of the greatest victories was... Um, the name escapes me, but a well-known journalist who wrote in his column, I have to be very careful and I walk on eggshells because the eagle-eyed Migdad Versi is watching. <laughs> and that's exactly the point. There should be uh, people watching for you those kind of... You should print that and frame it. That's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and so, I mean, there's a combination of problems. There's a reason why um, he's managed to elicit over 50 corrections from national newspapers in the last 18 months. And uh, part of it is time pressure. Journalists are on a deadline, um, uh, very strict deadlines, and maybe implicit biases come out when you just, you just have to type something really fast. Yeah, or... Some of it's racism. Yes, yes, I was getting to that. Some of it is sensationalism. What, what kind of, what kind of uh, errors is he pointing out? Give us some examples. Uh, there's quite a few. I mean, he listed a whole lot. Uh, one big prominent one, which I actually wrote about in LAMP, was about um, the... Do you remember the story about the white Christian girl adopted by a Muslim family? Yeah. And how uh, they were saying they were removing her cross, they were not letting her have spaghetti carbonara because of pork. Um, forcing her to speak Arabic. Forcing her to speak Arabic. And these were... The very times, inaccurate the exactly mm -hmm. and they printed I think for three four days it was front page news and um, they were very inaccurate and it was very biased and there was a ruling on this and it, you know there was a whole investigation and they discovered pr pretty much everything was wrong yeah. uh, the only thing was the cross was removed for safekeeping because it was expensive and she was a little girl um, and her grandparents were actually I think either spoke Arabic or were Muslim so there was yeah, like many elements and some of it is they didn't know at that time perhaps or they didn't find it out but other things like the, the grandparents uh, religion was known and they didn't include it in the story yeah I mean I'm pretty sure that article even after the Ipso ruling that criticised it I think the article's still on the website yeah with the same, uh, the same headline. headline so I mean actually this one of the things I mean I think that the, the guys does, does absolutely incredible work um, one of the things that I think is really interesting is or one of the difficulties is is that corrections are often like stuck on page 20 so you get mm -hmm. a front page of a newspaper yeah. with some inaccurate nonsense about Islam and Muslims, and then when they're finally when they're called on it, and then the victory happens, there's a correction on page yeah. twenty, little two lines saying, mm -hmm. "By the way, we got it wrong." Um, I think it's a big campaign that we should be looking into as well. Is pushing newspapers to have equal kind of and equally online corrections. They often put the online correction at the bottom of the story, yeah. so you have to read all the way through the story before you can get to the the bullet point at the bottom that says, "You know, we have corrected this." The headline is still the thing you find when you search on Google, etc. So yeah. I think it's a big problem. Mm -hmm. So his interview will be on LAMP, uh, well, when this comes out, on Friday. So do subscribe if you haven't done already. How there's can people a, subscribe? There's a whole section on the website. Um, so just go on hopenothate.org.uk uh, and sign up. Great, great. Um, the last one we wanted to talk about before um, uh, the interview was uh, Brexit adjacent. I'm not, <laughs> you've both given me looks. I don't want to get into a whole discussion about Theresa May's bad deal and uh, you know second referendum and all that other kind of stuff. But I do just want to give a, a plug for the report that our colleague Rosie Carter brought out uh, a few weeks ago, uh, Fear, Hope and Loss, uh, because it really struck me in the coverage of the of the of the deal over the last couple of days and the things that people are who are resigning are saying and even some of the things that are being brought up by um opponents of the deal is that we we still aren't we still two years into this uh, exercise aren't talking about uh the reasons why people voted for Brexit in the first place and and Rosie's report really um uh, digs into that and Gordon Brown gave a speech at the um uh, beginning of this week where he talked about um 
you know, stagnant wages, left behind communities, migration, sovereignty, the NHS are all issues that need to be addressed alongside the kind of specifics of how and and uh, when we're going to leave the the EU. It just it just seemed it just really struck me uh, as we've been having this big debate about resignations and you know no, vote of no confidence in Theresa May that two years in we're still not talking about why large swathes of the country decided to vote in the way that they did. Mm-hmm. Or it's simplified and just put up to bad decision or it was just a rejection of everything, etc. But it's not really delved into. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, the historian in me says, just wait 100 years and by then it will have become clear and we can, we can have a nice analysis which explains why it happened. Yes, um, if we're not all living in a nuclear cloud or something. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was even more pessimistic than I thought it was going to get. <laughs> well, I mean, I think we'll... We, we'll we can't have that discussion now. This is a a, a parliamentary fight. Uh, Theresa May has to try and get her deal uh, through Parliament. Uh, I don't think she can. And then it's a question of what happens then. I thought Gordon Brown had a really interesting idea on Monday. Instead of this kind of zero-sum game of no deal versus Theresa May's bad deal versus a you know, people's vote or whatever you want to call it. Gordon Brown was suggesting let's let's hit the pause button, and uh, you know he was calling for a, a, you know a people's royal commi- royal commission where it's like one of these royal commissions, but instead of the the great and good bringing together union leaders and and people who run small businesses and people that work for community groups in in some of the areas that Rosie was in when she did this report. I think Rosie should be on the commission mm-hmm. if they go ahead with it. Uh, she won't thank me for saying that. But, you know, try and get some people together and, and try and find a national consensus because I think that's something that we haven't really tried to do. It's a kind of a zero-sum game. 52% of people said X, let's just get it done uh, without really talking about what that was that people were saying and, and how we achieve it. Um, it's an, it's an interesting idea. one. I mean, I'm, I'm torn. I'm torn on it. Like, with, I mean, there's. I think anyone who says that it's either simple or easy, or uh, it's, it's completely obvious what should happen, I think probably hasn't thought about it long enough. I mean, on that, I can see that. I can see the merits of that. On the flip side of that, I think that there'd be a huge amount of people that voted Brexit which feel betrayed by that, or feel that it was being kicked into the long grass, or they're being held off. I mean, we're already seeing your UKIP types, your Farage types, your Tommy Robinson types talking about betrayals and that sort of stuff. And another two years of those discussions might not be not might not be helpful. So I'm torn on it. I mean, I really I really don't know where we're going to go, but I guess we're going to... I mean, perhaps it's not really... Now's not the time to dig into that. <laughs> we've got to get out. Right, well, uh, let's move on. Sophia, you, uh, you did the interview that we're going to uh, hear. Do you want to introduce it for everyone? Uh, yes, so I interviewed uh, Darren Byler, who's a lecturer at the University of Washington, and he studies the Uyghur people. Uh, for those of you who haven't been keeping up with international news, China at the moment is, has created and built mass re-education camps for the Uyghur, who are um, mo- mostly, I would say, uh, Muslims. And uh, the stories coming out of these camps are rather horrifying and don't seem to indicate anything good is happening. Um, so Darren has been studying uh, the Uyghur for, for years. He's been uh, over to China in the region uh, several times. And so he talks about what is happening, the misinformation and lies the Chinese government is putting out um, instead. And um, I really recommend a listen. First, can you tell me a bit about what you do, who you are, and why you're working on the Uyghurs? Mm-hmm. So I'm an anthropologist. I teach at the University of Washington in Seattle. Uh, and I've been working in the northwest part of China for quite a long time, since 2003. I first mm-hmm. went there as a phot- photographer. I um, was really fascinated by the situation that I saw. It's a uh, interesting landscape. Uh, it's a desert region where people live in oasis towns. Mm-hmm. And I, had, I didn't know anything about it prior to coming to the region. And, and I was just taken with it. Um, and I was interested to see that there's this group of people, around 11 million Uyghurs, that were living there um, in, in quite isolated circumstances, or, or to some extent isolated circumstances. Uh, but I could see as well that their society was changing. 
mm-hmm. um, because there was people moving into that region. The state was moving in and developing it. Um, and so I, I could see that the society was going to change quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's really what drew me into that this project was understanding how people in this region are going to cope with those changes. Um, as a side note, were you already a sociologist when you went there as a photographer? No, I was just a photographer. Oh, wow. Okay. I, decided, I decided after, after encountering these people and, and then working for a bit in, in the photo, photography industry that I wanted to go back to school and, and do a longer form sort of research project about this region. Mm. So um, we've been hearing a lot recently about the Uyghurs online or in the media. Um, can you describe the situation happening there? Yes. So the situation has changed uh, for the worse, uh, at least from the Uyghur perspective, quite dramatically in in recent years. In 2009, there was large scale protests um, uh, that that escalated into kind of inter-ethnic violence in the city of Urumqi, which is the Mm -hmm. capital of this this province. Um, And following that, there's large scale crackdowns on the population. A hard strike campaign is what the state described it as. Uh, which resulted in uh, a large-scale increase in policing um, and mass detentions uh, of of people suspected of crimes. Uh, in 2014, after some violent, more more violent protests and, and incidents, um, this turned in what into what the the Chinese state called the People's War on Terror, um, mm-hmm. which was directed towards Uyghurs as a population as a whole mm-hmm. um, and has since resulted in hundreds of thousands of Uyghurs being detained in, in re-education camps and thousands more in prisons. Okay. Um, we've just, I've just recently read that the UK confirms the reports of the Chinese uh, mass re-education camps. And I've, I've read that most Muslim country or Muslim majority countries have not have been keeping their silence. Why is that the case? Do you know? I think it has a lot to do with trade agreements, um, economic opportunities that these that Muslim majority countries are interested in maintaining in relation mm-hmm. to China. Um, and so I think because of those reasons, they're they're afraid to speak out. Um, I think they're also wanting to respect China's sovereignty and and want China to respect theirs. Um, mm. And so they. They they want to keep a hands off uh, keep their hands off of this sort of uh, situation, um, but but it's, it's it's quite appalling how some of the Muslim majority countries have responded to it by extraditing Uyghurs back to China where they go straight to the prison camps. Um, it, it, it's something that that is hard to reckon with in, in terms of kind of moral. Uh, uh, I did not actually know that. Is there are there any protests happening around that? There are some protests in in places like Pakistan and India, um, mm-hmm. but the the countries that have exported the most, deported the most Uyghurs back to China are, are yep. uh, places like Dubai or Egypt, and, mm. and we haven't heard much about protests in those yeah. regions. Mm-hmm. Um, in Turkey, there's also some support for for Uyghurs. Okay, um, I've read online that the re-education camps. I've read that there are three hundred thousand people there, and I've read that one million Uyghurs that have been interned there. Um, do you have more accurate information? Well, it's very hard to know f- with certainty exactly how many people there are. Um, but looking at uh, a number of different sources, uh, ranging from satellite imagery, we can see these camps being built and we can estimate based on the number, the, the space uh, that's actually built on mm-hmm. the ground, um, the kind of capacity that these camps have. Yep. There's 180 or more that are documented now. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of these camps are the really the largest prisons in the world. Um, uh, we've also heard numerous reports from people that have been released, um, mostly Kazakhstan citizens that were detained sort of by mistake, mm-hmm. uh, that there's conditions of overcrowding in the camps. Um, mm-hmm. So all of that leads us to, to believe that the capacity of many of these camps is, is uh, more or less full, that the, the, the camps mm-hmm. are more or less full. So... so Looking at the size that we can see, thinking about the reports we've heard from 
from people that have either been released or have worked in these camps, mm-hmm. um, we can estimate that it is somewhere in the neighborhood of 800,000 to a million to more. Mm-hmm. Um, we've also seen some some numbers released sort of uh, that were sort of leaked by the by the uh, state workers mm-hmm. um, of of camp uh, numbers associated with the camps and that it, it placed those at, at over a million people. Okay. Um, um, I mean, I, I've been reading a bit more about the Uyghurs and I didn't know a lot. Um, and you mentioned the 2009 protests um, and I, I read that afterwards thousands of Uyghur young men were disappeared by the state. And there was, I mean, was there no outrage around that? Was there anything done then at that time? Well, the families of the of the young men that were disappeared were, of course, very upset by it. Um, the state introduced a new form that people could fill out to re- record the, num- the, the name and information of the person that was disappeared. Um, but there was no uh, official inquiry uh, mm. placed and and none of these young men, or at least that I have heard of, have been um, reappeared or any mm-hmm. any explanation has been given. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to have any sort of political protest in, in China, um, yeah. especially in this region. Uh, protests of any sort are very quickly labeled terrorist events by the state. Mm-hmm. Um, they're often met directly with violence, um, mm-hmm. shooting um, on the street, on the spot. Um, so it's very difficult to protest anything. Mm-hmm. Um, when when was the last time you were there? I was there in April of this year. April of this uh, 2018. year, 2018. And how much access did you have? I was able to travel in a lot of the urban areas. I was in the capital of Urumqi and then went to a smaller town called Turpan, mm-hmm. um, which is is just a, two hours or so away from the main city, and then uh, traveled south and west to a, a major city called Kashgar. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I could triangulate a little bit based on those experiences living, uh, going into a large city, smaller town, and then a mid-sized city, um, uh, what, what exactly is happening on the ground. Mm-hmm. I wasn't able to travel very far beyond the city limits, though. Um, I was stopped at checkpoints and not per- permitted to travel further. Which is what is beyond the city limits? It's rural areas, villages, um, and it's really where a lot of the crackdowns are happening is in rural mm. areas. Um, people that are, are coming from the countryside, from villages, are seen as um, the least educated um, mm-hmm. and also the most religious. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so a lot of the policing, a lot of the, the people that have been disappeared, been taken to the, the camp system, have come from rural areas. Okay. Um, it's affecting people in urban areas as well, but but the rural areas are the hardest hit. And so they're, they're what... Uh, the state wants to prevent outsiders from seeing. Mm. And you've you've obviously written about the Uyghurs, and it's not always very complimentary to the Chinese state. Uh, have you had any problems? So far, so far, I haven't had any issues in terms of travel or, or you know, at least coming in, allowing to uh, being allowed to go into the country. Um, there is now restrictions, I think, on what I'm able to see outside of kind of permitted tourist zones mm. or urban spaces. So I think that was part of the reason why I wasn't permitted to travel into the rural areas mm-hmm. is because they they knew that I was a researcher and, and wanted to prevent me from seeing more. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I, I'm also watched as I as I travel quite a lot. Um, uh, not always by police following me, but on camera systems, and mm. they're they're keeping tabs on on where I'm going. So I'm quite careful now um, about who I talk to, and because I can, uh-huh. I could get them in trouble. Yeah, um, can you actually describe the the state of surveillance there? So the surveillance system is really centered around what they call a convenience police station system uh, in in urban areas, at least which is police stations every three to 500 meters um, that are complemented by uh, camera systems that are, in many cases, face recognition uh, enabled. Mm-hmm. So they can track people's faces and uh, uh, search. Uh, they, can, they can pull up your your movements mm-hmm. in this video system. Um, as you move down the street, you move from one camera bank to the next one. So they have a view of you no matter where you are. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's also random checkpoints uh, conducted by police officers, often stationed at these convenience police stations where they check IDs and they also check your phone. 
Um, there's uh, and it, face scanning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go ahead. Was it? I assume it wasn't like this the first time you went into the region. No, uh, when I went there the first time for an extended period of time in 2011, um, there was uh, a police presence, an active police presence, because this was after 2009 when those mm. protests happened. Um, but there wasn't re- regular checkpoints in any way. There, there was there was camera systems already mm-hmm. that had just been installed, uh, but those were fairly um, uh, th- they weren't. AI enabled or or anything like that. They weren't smart. It wasn't a smart camera system. It was mm-hmm. something that required a lot of manpower to actually look mm-hmm. at. It was just close close circuit cameras. Mm-hmm. Um, 2014 is when that really turned towards this more sophisticated form of surveillance with all of these checkpoints and and data security mm-hmm. uh, analysis. Um, going just going to the official Chinese story, which has changed slightly over the few weeks as interest has um, uh, increased across the world. Um, Beijing is saying that uh, it's a it's a reacting to a terrorism threat. And apparently there have been uh, Uyghur terrorists that have managed to organize a suicide car crash. And there was a mass knifing attack, apparently, in the city of Kunming. How um, is there any validity to their official, let's say, reasons. Mm-hmm. So there, there have been violent incidents. Um, one of the things that happened between 2009 and 2014 um, was the rise of, of social media uh, uh, in the Uyghur population. Mm-hmm. Many people began to use the Internet for the first time as the Internet arrived during the, that period of time. Uh, and, and so people did become more aware of kind of global movements. Um, most Uyghurs were not interested in any in political forms of Islam or Salafist forms mm-hmm. of Islam. Um, they were mostly interested in um, understanding what it means to be pious, um, mm-hmm. studying kind of main mainstream forms of Hanafi Sunni mm-hmm. Islam. Um, there was also a, a good deal of interest in the Hizmet movement, which is something emanating out of Turkey. Okay. Um, so, in general, Uyghurs began to uh, appear more pious in their their outward appearance um, in 2011 to 14. Um, Sorry, so it did, by saying uh, appearing more pious, what do you mean? Is it like more religious, as in wearing a beard <coughs> or a headscarf? Yeah, so... M- Many young men began to um, wear beards. They began to pray more regularly, going to the mosque five times a day. Mm-hmm. Um, they were more concerned with uh, halal uh, forms of, mm-hmm. of eating and, and so basically regular oneself. Muslim stuff. Yeah, just re- really regular Muslim stuff. Uh, one of the one of the issues in the past was that Uyghurs didn't have access to Islamic education because uh, mm-hmm. the state regulates it very closely. Um, but because of the internet technology, they were able to get a lot more exposure to how Muslims in other places live their lives. But doesn't and China also, regulate uh, the internet? It does, but one of the issues with uh, uh, the the arrival of the internet, the Uyghur internet, was they were using an app called WeChat, which is mm-hmm. a, a social media app that allows Uyghurs to use spoken word. Um, so they were just using speech, and that mm-hmm. allowed them to listen to a number of uh, to recordings or uh, teachings, mm. which they called tablik. Okay. Um, and and the state didn't have a way of regulating that for mm-hmm. around three years because they didn't know uh, they didn't have the technology to recognize Uyghur speech mm-hmm. uh, and or or to transcribe it to mm. translate it into Chinese. Um, so they couldn't really censor it very accurately. Um, so for a number of years, for three years, people were using this technology fairly freely okay. and 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 not being too worried about the censorship. Mm-hmm. They felt like the state wasn't really paying attention, and so they, mm-hmm. they were really taking adv- advantage mm-hmm. of the freedom. Um, so all of that is to say that, that there was a turn towards piety among the population as a whole. Um, it's not that they weren't pious before, but new forms of piety is what they were interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, so the state was paying attention to that. They said, oh, why are these Muslims uh, dressing differently? Um, and then there was also a rise in what appeared to be religiously motivated violence, uh, protest. Um, 
but those those incidents were very small. I, I mean, relative to the population as a whole, there was three or four, uh, five maybe of those incidents. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly, they were not. I don't think actually directly ideologi- ideologically motivated. Most most of the acts of violence were were motivated not by ideology, but by feelings of loss, by immediate injustice in in a person's family. Um, you know, someone's uncle, someone's brother, someone's father being taken, uh, maybe shot on the street, or taken to prison uh, without real you know trial. Um, and so it's you know a loss in the family is really what motivated a lot of the violence. Um, but there was a few instances of violence: one in Kunming, one in Beijing, uh, and a couple instances in Rumchi, um, where, you know, people appeared to be carrying out an attack or, or violent uh, act um, in, associ- in association with a, a sort of religious uh, Islamic um, uh, motivation. Uh, they, they, you know, were carrying flags um, and things like that. So the state used that as a as a way of saying we have a problem with terrorism as a whole, and that these these the population of Uyghurs that were turning towards these more pious forms of Islam that they were extremists, um, and conflating their piety with a kind of uh, uh, political motivation, uh, or a, a, they were politicizing uh, religious practice. And that's so when the education re-education camps came out. Yeah, the re-education camps came out um, not immediately, but within, or at least at the scale that they've emerged now. Um, they began in 2014, and then they were really amplified in 2016 when we saw kind of this mass detention of hundreds of thousands of people. Um, you, you've mentioned you've actually written uh, an article about the citizens that occupy Uyghur homes. Can you? Tell me a bit about that and how effective it's been. Right. So the, this process is not just affecting Uyghurs. It's placed around a, ten, a, a tenth of the Uyghur population in, the, in these camps. Um, but it's also affected around a tenth of the Han population in the province. So the Han is the majority group in China. Um, it's the, the group that's that's um, kind of occupying the Uyghur homeland. Um, so they've sent around one million Han civilian workers to Uyghur homes to monitor those that, that remain outside of the camps. They, they primarily target get families of those that have been detained. That's one of their first priorities. And when they arrive in the in the Uyghur homes, they observe uh, the kind of loyalties they have to the people that have been detained. Um, any, they're, they're looking for any forms of religiosity that might remain, looking for signs like on the walls of, of any sort of religious symbols. Um, and then they also perform a lot of uh, kind of religious tests. So they ask people to you know, drink alcohol with them, to smoke cigarettes, um, to swear allegiance to uh, China, to the party, um, in some cases to denounce Islam, things like that. Um, so it, it is interesting the way that the kind of what the these civilian workers talk about as a patriotism or nationalism, the way it, it takes on a sort of religious fervor. It's something that um, is a, a part of, of, of life as a whole. So part of embodied everyday practice is to be a patriotic citizen, and you need to perform that over and over again on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. I, I noticed in your article that the citizens doing this did not find it morally reprehensible in any way. Yeah, I think some of them recognize that this would be a difficult process for Uyghurs, uh, that they could see that, uh, first of all, having so many people be taken into these camps uh, was an issue uh, for Uyghurs, but also that, you know, that their that their their faith and their cultural you know, background, all those values are being kind of erased or, or diminished. And I think they could recognize that that was a difficult process. I think, though, most of them felt as though it was a necessary process. So they said this was going to be difficult for, for Uyghurs, but in the end, it will have the benefit of Uyghurs being secularized and becoming uh, modern. They, they often talk about Uyghurs as being backward and uneducated. Um, and so they saw they saw what they were doing as a, a kind of benevolence, uh, a way of educating and, and, and bringing Uyghurs into the, the modern Chinese nation. Okay. Um, one thing I did want to touch upon is why... 
Why now? Why 2018 for the year? This may be just a wrong perception because I wasn't paying attention to the issue before. But why has it suddenly acquired importance? Well, the the camp uh, build out and occupation, the the sending of this, you know, one million Uyghurs to these camps happened in 2017. And I think it's taken a bit of time for people to kind of reckon with that. There was a lot of doubt uh, as to the accuracy of of these numbers. Um, You know, what is actually happening in the camps? It wasn't wasn't clear. Um, And so it took quite a bit of time to convince people that this is really happening, that it's important. Uh, Uyghurs are a stateless people. And because of that, they don't have a lot of institutional support around the world. Um, and so just getting people to recognize who these people are and what and what's happening to them has taken a lot of work. Um, I think, though, that now that some of the stories have come out uh, of what's happening in the camps, what's happening to the children that have been sent to orphanages as a result of their parents being taken, um, these really moving human stories, I think those have really captured people's attention and made people realize that this is something that, that everyone should care about. Yeah, Rahila was uh, is a uh, really eminent uh, folklore scholar. Uh, she s- studies um, Uyghur folklore and also uh, the geography of mazars, which are shrines uh, for the, the, those that brought Islam to the Uyghurs um, in centuries past. Uh, and she, she's someone that's mentored many, many uh, graduate students in anthropology and in folklore studies, um, both Uyghur and Western students. Um, and she had spent a, a year here uh, in the University of Washington, where I'm at, um, as a visiting scholar and went back to China uh, two years ago. Um, and was living in China for a year uh, in 2016, uh, relatively uh, unscathed. Um, in January of 2017, she was actually featured on the cover of Xinjiang Women's Magazine as a sort of success story of how a minority person could become a successful academic. Um, but then at the end of the year, 2017, December, she she was taken, uh, disappeared, really, by the state. We don't really know what's happening to her now. Um, she was to- told to pack her bags for an important meeting. Um, and, and then as she was leaving to go to this meeting, she was... Uh, taken. So we haven't heard really what she's been charged with or if she's going to be charged with something. We don't know if she's in the re-education camp or is in prison, Um, but it's it's Mm -hmm. been quite a shock. Mm, I can imagine. Um, uh, uh, Did you personally know her? Yeah, I knew her quite well. Um, We've known each other for since 2014. Um, and, And yeah. So I guess my final question would be, where do you think this is heading now? Do you think there's going to be an impact from international pressure? And I know I'm kind of sending you all types of questions, political, historical, etc. I'd like your take on it. Well, from the Chinese perspective, engaging in, they say, is uh, is a project to protect the population of China as a whole from the threat of terrorism. So they see it as a security effort. Um, and they talk about this as producing what they call long-term stability or long-term security. That's the sort of final solution that they have for what they call the Xinjiang problem. So I, th- I think now uh, there's a, a considerable amount of momentum in China towards this project. Um, lots and lots of resources have been invested in it. Um, it's also a center for developing new forms of technology, uh, computer vision technology, uh, which China, I think, is seeing as a, a, a an exportable product that they're hoping to you know send to other countries in the future. So because of, of those reasons, I think there's a lot of momentum in China to keep this thing going and um, to follow through on it. Uh, I think as other states get uh, invested in or become aware of what's happening to the Uyghurs, there, there might be more more pushback. There, there could be some san- sanctions towards uh, some of these companies that are involved and some towards some of these leaders. Um, but it's very difficult to foresee any kind of resolution that would come, come forward quickly. 
Um, so it feels as though this is something that will play out over the long term, maybe the next 10 to 20 years uh, as Uyghurs, uh, a, a generation of Uyghurs are, are sort of lost in this process and a, a new generation that's trained in, in the Chinese education system is brought up. So these re-education camps are here to stay in the mid near future? That's my sense. Um, I'm not hopeful that there will be a resolution that would would um, would it make it make them go away quicker. It's, it doesn't mean that we can't fight and we should fight, uh, and we need to continue to you know make the voices of these people heard um, uh, as can we can. People do for as you said, the situation is grim. Is there any hope? Is there any small action any person like the average listener to this podcast can take? One of the things that people can do in, in locations around the world is, is come alongside the, the Uyghurs that are in diaspora. Um, many of them are, you know, without uh, their family members. Uh, many of them have family members in these camps, um, and they're now without a country and without a state. So, so there's stateless people in diaspora, and and they need support from the community around them. Um, many of them need le legal assistance, uh, as they are many still on a. Chinese passport, and so they need to find refuge um, in other states. Um, so legislators and community folks, they can come alongside them and, and support them as they can. Um, in terms of other things people could do, I, I think, you know, placing pressure on their politicians is, is something that could have some effect, hopefully, um, in, in making making this story more widely understood and also maybe preventing some of the, the extreme forms of, of, um, of violence that are happening. Right? The, the biggest concern of, for most of us is that there's we, we don't want to see anything like uh, you know mass death that could come out of this sort of a camp system, um, as, as has happened in other camp systems in the past. Um, and so I think continuing to keep a light on this is something that could prevent some of that from happening. Thank you very much, Darren. Is there anything else you want to add? No, I think that's that's pretty much covered it. Um, I mean, another thing I guess to keep in mind is that that, that most Han people, most Chinese people that are uh, living in China or that are in around the world. Um, living in diasporas, overseas Chinese, many of them don't are, are not fully aware of what's happening um, to Uyghurs. And, and so it's important not to blame them directly for, for what their state is doing. Um, if, if there is a chance to stop this, it would probably be coming from the Chinese population standing up and saying, you know, we don't want to do this uh, to a minority group. Um, and so I think talking, if you, if you have the opportunity to talk to Han people about the situation, I think I think understanding that is, is, a, is a good approach, um, understanding that there's maybe a lack of knowledge about the situation. China controls China controls all news media in China, and so the ability for people to actually talk openly about what's happening is very limited. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think in general, that's a good rule to not shout at people about how horrible they are when you're trying to fix something. <laughs> yes. Wow, I mean, well, fascinating, but also pretty terrifying, eh? I mean, um, I remember the first time I kind of came across this story in earnest. I mean, it's been bubbling along for a while now, hasn't it? And bits have been mm -hmm. creeping out and some news stories. Um, I was really blown away by the piece of work the BBC did recently, the long read. Um, big fan of the long read format anyway, but the one they did was really remarkable. The story was terrifying. The way they presented it was absolutely stunning, and I think it really has raised this profile as a, the issue uh, as a profile. And they really personalised it, which yeah. is the important part, and not being done enough. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, I read that as well. It was it's, it's it's a hard piece to read, and that was a hard interview to listen to. Partly because it's so difficult to see what what can happen next. I mean, do you? What I do mean, you... exactly. That's what 
think that's kind of the depressing but true point Darren is making. No country is going to pressure China, or at least hasn't done until now, over this. Uh, no Muslim majority countries or any other countries uh, with better human rights records. And the the concern he mentioned about mass death, the thing they want to avoid, is it's scary that we're talking about it, that it's something that could happen. Um, And I think it was interesting that he talks about, I mean, when China really clamped down um, in 2014, he talked about how the Uyghurs started appearing more pious outwardly uh, from 2011-2014. They had access to WeChat, um, a form of internet, and they started, you know, finding out how other Muslims were practicing. And the things he mentioned, the growing a beard, praying five times a day, the completely normal Muslim things and how they were perceived as a threat. And I'm not saying it's the same in Europe at all, but there is that small, you sometimes read in the media, etc. It's like the signs of extremism and it's like he started praying or he, he grew out a beard or she started wearing a headscarf. And I think we have to be very careful with that. Yeah, absolutely. All right, before we wrap up, I just want to give a quick plug to a, a great um, investigative piece that, uh, Joe, you wrote uh, over the weekend about Poland. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, just to finish on an absolutely terrifying and another depressing note. Um, we were in Poland. It was the National Day demonstration, and we had a team out for the day um, on the demonstration in Warsaw. I mean, I, I mean, as I say, the article's online, so do have a look, and we'll be doing it as a long read next week um, for people who don't want to read it all. But... I mean, terrifying is only word for it, really. I mean, the demonstration was easily 200,000, maybe a quarter of a million people on the demonstration. The largest demo... I mean, last year they got 60,000. And when we're saying, you know, often people say, oh, these people are fascists. I mean, the people organising the demonstration, the two, two of the key organisations that organise this event are explicitly fascist, explicitly far-right. Um, there's no way around this. The flags on the demonstrations we saw, the... the, the countless skinheads, the countless Nazi skinheads we saw, blood and honour badges and this was an absolutely terrifying terrifying day, big groups coming over from all over the world for this so uh, that will be, it's on our website now but we'll also be doing a long read next week um, so that you can kind of hear a little bit more about it I think that's one of our most depressing podcasts to date, like just the topics discussed (laughs) Yeah. Well, we got the Tommy win. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah we, we, kept, we kept, we kept. We should have ended out, with that. We kept learning out of the out of the US. Uh, so we'll wrap up for today. Um, for those uh, people that have made it all the way through the end uh, without uh, turning off in misery, uh, thank you for for making it all the way through. Please uh, rate and review the podcast on the platform that you use. It really does help more people find uh, our podcast and, and help us. Uh, Uh, reach more people please share it with your friends Uh, in the meantime thank you for listening and have a great weekend bye bye